0: So today we're continuing our uh, sermon series around uh, getting unstuck, recognizing that what got us here may not get us further. Now I remember uh, growing up uh, when I was in high school, my dad had purchased an old TR7, uh, a Triumph uh, Model 7. It was an old British racing car, road car, um, looked a lot like the uh, Pontiac Fiero that's not a compliment it's just a description Um, it was um, six-speed it it had a uh, moonroof, um, it had uh, worn-out seats, um, uh, it had a particular kind of uh, rearview mirror, uh, the kind that suddenly would drop from the windshield at inopportune times. Uh, in fact, uh, the last time I saw it, it was off-center uh, on the windshield. That's because if you just kinda, in the middle of traffic, you lose that puppy on the floor, you're just banging it back up on the windshield, making sure that it sticks. We worked on that in the summers uh, between my uh, 14th and 15th birthdays. Uh, and, and as I got close to being 16, the plan was we have refurbished that car, and that would be my high school car. Um, now, I probably drove that car about twice. Um, it wasn't really ready for the time that I turned 16, but it was an adventure to drive it for sure. You see, I grew up in the woodlands. Uh, We were the kind of, we were part of the three or four people that were actually middle class in the woodlands. Um, And there is nothing like having a unique car to drive, but that uniqueness kind of wears away. When you've stalled it in the middle of the intersection between Panther Creek and Woodlands Parkway, and you and your friend are out, and you're pushing it to get it through the intersection, hoping that you can get enough velocity that you can pop that clutch, and maybe it'll start again. Um, There's nothing unique. Well, it is unique to have your car stall in the middle of everybody, but it certainly isn't cool. Cool. I wonder, have you been feeling a little bit of stalling or stuckness in your faith walk? Uh, you know, there's something annoying about a stalled engine. You feel like everything's working, that if it'll just catch a spark, if it'll just turn over, if you just have a, a little bit more gas in the tank, maybe you could make it where you're going. It might be interesting to hear that there are stories of people who are stuck and stalled, not just in the world around us, but in the scriptures that we read. And one particular scripture story is the story about James and John. James and John are with Jesus and the whole of the disciples are headed to Jerusalem. Now, James and John have grown up as young Jewish boys and they have known the Romans as their oppressors. And in the synagogues, they were taught that someday a Messiah would come who would kick the Roman oppressors out. And here, James and John, who clearly did not have a, um, a small, let's see, who, who certainly had an oversized ego with their nicknames of the Sons of Thunder, they thought they were now in orbit around the Messiah who was headed to Jerusalem, who would have a military victory, and who would remedy Israel of its oppressors from Rome. And so along this journey, the journey starts first um, with the healing of a blind man, and the journey ends right before they get to Jerusalem with another healing of a blind man. And you'd think that maybe Mark is trying to tell us that during this journey, James and John and the rest of the disciples have clear sight as to what Jesus is doing, but it's only a little bit of contradiction to have the story framed between two men getting their sight back because it certainly wasn't James and John. Along the journey to Jerusalem, Jesus has predicted his death, persecu- persecution, death, and resurrection no less than three times. And the disciples miss it all three times. In fact, that one particular one where, where um, Peter says, um, you know, not you, Lord, not, not you to die on a cross and to be slain, and do you remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. That, that's how lost the disciples are on this road to Jerusalem. But James and John, being a little bit dense, uh, they come up to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do uh, for us whatever we ask of you. Now, those of you who are parents of teenagers or have been parents of teenagers, you, you know how to answer this question, right? Right? mom, dad, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. (laughs) Well, it depends on what you're asking, right? And so Jesus, being a smart parent, says, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And there's the key to that comment, in your glory. You see, the disciples think that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to assume the Davidic monarchy, to carry out the line, to sit on the throne. And James and John, they want the right and the left-hand seats. What's fascinating is that right and left-hand seat, that's the place of honor during a banquet. That's the place of power. But it would make sense if James and John were asking Jesus like off to the side. But no, James and John asked Jesus right in front of the other 10 disciples as if to say, you people overhear this. Jesus is about to set us up. And don't you feel bad that you didn't think to ask him first? And so Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Now, this is a great moment of miscommunication, right? Uh, Because what Jesus is saying, are are you able to drink the cup of suffering and death? Are you ready to be baptized in the death and resurrection that I'll be baptized in? But James and John are thinking, can Can we drink from the gold-jeweled cup of your monarchy? Why, yes, we can. Can we be baptized? And remember, baptism at this point doesn't mean some sacrament, but rather it means a washing, a ritual washing. Well, could we get washed in the fancy bathtubs of Herod in the palace? Why, yes. So Jesus says, are you able? And James and John said, we are able completely clueless as to what they're signing up for. And Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink, with the, uh, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the 10 heard this, They began to be angry with James and John, wouldn't you, right? The the, the other 10, they're like, I thought we were all equal. Now, equal is interesting, um, because James and John and Peter often got to go do things that the other disciples didn't get to do. Remember, they'd have special field trips to the Transfiguration and to uh, all these different opportunities to see and experience things that the other 10 didn't get to experience. And so when the rest of them heard it, they were angry. So Jesus called them all and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, if James and John had the opportunity to clue in that they had the wrong idea of Jesus as Messiah, there it is. I mean, we're used to elected officials. We're used to uh, people playing within the rules. Um, We're used to a different kind of rulers over us. We have benefited from possibly a lifetime of learning that Jesus is about service, not about lording it over others. But James and John and the disciples are hearing this for the very first time. And in fact, that that servant of all, that doulos uh, is the Greek that's there, is that it it might as well be translated as slave of all. It's a powerful thing for James and John to fight for superiority among others when what Jesus' message is, is to be a servant to all. I wonder if you have uh, experienced a little bit of stuckness. James and John had seen Jesus teach and heal. He'd seen him raise the dead and feed the masses. Uh, You know, they were the children of their era. They had seen Jesus become that Messiah before their eyes. And they were ready to do more. Jesus had sent them out two by two and they had done the things that Jesus had done. They were ready for more activity. And by asking for the right and the left hand seats in his glory, they were setting themselves up for more activity. But what they needed was to take some time to get deeper in their faith, to listen to the man that they were following to begin seeing that the activity that they had described their relationship with Jesus needed to become a depth of being in relationship with Jesus. It's really easy to get stuck to get stalled in our faith. I mean, I have no idea what it's like to be in your shoes, but I know what it's like to be in my shoes. And when you work and eat and play and rest all in the same place, your house, You find yourself being, uh, doing all the time. I'm, I'm a dad, right? No, you can't do this. No, you can't have a friend over, right? And then I'm also the guy that, you know, that's working hard to be a good financial steward, right? So I'm doing the bills, right? All the same table where I'm writing my sermon, where I'm eating my dinner, where I'm talking with my wife. There are so many activities to do that it's easy to get stuck in the doing of the activities and to forget that there's a place of being, a place of being still, a place of knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus has called us to be. What's interesting is uh, when Jesus says, you will drink of my cup, is that James and John both experience persecution. That's really what the symbolism of the cup means. Um, you know, James and John both have their own uh, persecutions that they endure uh, in the rest of their lives. Uh, They begin to realize, I think, as life goes on for them, that faith does not just mean the activities that they did with Jesus, but it becomes a being, a purpose, a way of life, that even when there's no activity, there is still something for them to do as Christians. I think the same is true for you and me, that, that our faith needs to be more than just a collection of activities. It needs to be more than just a hobby that we subscribe to. Um, I was thinking a lot over this last week about uh, Paul Myler and about um, how uh, together we had uh, journeyed together. And uh, as Paul discovered his uh, call to ministry and been thinking about him as he heads off to have his uh, first appointment and to preach that first sermon that that, uh, all of us ministers have had a chance to have the butterflies and to be um, wondered and worried about. I remember Paul telling me that when he lived in Belgium with his family, um, when he was working for BASF, that um, he would try to kind of take the experience they had at a a Protestant uh, house church that they joined there in Belgium um, into the workplace. And he would uh, tell uh, Belgium workers at BASF who'd ask them, what did you do this weekend? He would say, well, I went to church. And they would say, that's nice. We went for a bicycle ride. And, and he'd try again. They'd say, well, what'd you do Wednesday night? And he said, I, I went to church and I studied scripture and they'd say, that's nice. We went to a painting class. That every time he mentioned faith, um, the folk that he worked with would mention their hobbies. And he began to realize that in this social context, faith was just a hobby that it didn't mean a change of life, it didn't mean a change of culture, that the activities that one might do in your hobby rarely uh, affect the community that you live in. I think James and John are coming to the realization that even with Jesus being persecuted, hung on a cross, dying and resurrecting, that their activities would need to mean more to the community than just what they did for three years. Uh, There's an author that I've uh, enjoyed, uh, Jared Wilson. He writes uh, in his book uh, from 2017, The Imperfect Disciple. uh, He says that your relationship with Jesus has to have more to do with it than just the work of a hobby. He says about his own faith, my gospel is burning a hole in my pocket. It is an ember smoldering, singeing my threads, and my thigh. It is leaving a mark. It cannot be contained. My gospel is a wildfire waiting to happen. It scorches dry earth, lays waste to dead limbs. What is your faith like these days? Are you feeling stalled and stuck? Maybe the fix is the same uh, fix that James and John needed. Instead of being so focused on the calendar, so focused on the activities, become focused on the being in relationship with Jesus. Begin to hear how Jesus is asking for more from us than just activity, but rather a deep abiding faith that compels us to serve our neighbor. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll keep looking at biblical figures who found themselves stuck, stalled, and even stale. I hope that you'll keep coming back as we look together as to how to have a a uh, life-giving, hope-filled, inspiring walk with Jesus, even in those times when we might feel stuck, stalled, or stale. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.